Volume One, Chapter Twenty of Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Untitled Chapter. Without waiting to convoy the fire ships and explosion vessels, the Imperieuse sailed forthwith for Basque Roads in order to expedite the necessary arrangements so that on their arrival no time might be lost in putting the project in execution a point on which the board of admiralty was most urgent not more in a belligerent than a political point of view for as has been stated the public was dissatisfied that the enemy had been permitted to escape from brest whilst our west indian merchants were in a state of panic lest the french squadron which had escaped the vigilance of the blockading force before brest might again slip out and inflict irretrievable disaster on their colonial interests then the most important branch of our maritime commerce the imperieuse arrived in basque roads on the third of april when i was received with great urbanity by the commander-in-chief his lordship without reserve communicating to me the following order from the admiralty reader's note order begins admiralty office twenty fifth of march eighteen o nine my lord my lord's commissioners of the admiralty having thought fit to select captain lord cochrane for the purpose of conducting under your lordship's direction the fire-ships to be employed in the projected attack on the enemy's squadron off isle de a i have their lordship's commands to signify their direction to you to employ lord cochrane in the above-mentioned service accordingly wherever the attack shall take place and i am to acquaint you that the twelve fire-ships of which you already had notice are now in the downs in readiness and detained only by contrary winds and that mr congreve is also at that anchorage with an assortment of rockets ready to proceed with the fire-ships i am to acquaint you that the composition for the six transports sent to your lordship by admiral young and one thousand carcasses for eighteen pounders will sail in the course of three or four days from woolwich to join you off rockford i have etc etc w w pole admiral lord gambier reader's note order ends whatever might have been the good feeling manifested by lord gambier it did not however extend to the officers of the fleet whose amour propos lord mulgrave had either not attempted or had failed to satisfy every captain was my senior and the moment my plans were made known all regarded me as an interloper sent to take credit from those whom it was now considered legitimately to belong why could we not have done this as well as lord cochrane was the general cry of the fleet and the question was reasonable for the means once devised there could be no difficulty in effectually carrying them out others asked why did not lord gambier permit us to do this before the second query taking much of the sting from the first as regarded myself but laying the blame on the commander-in-chief the ill-humour of the fleet found an exponent in the person of admiral harvey a brave trafalgar officer whose abuse of lord gambier to his face was such as i had never witnessed before from a subordinate i should even now hesitate to record it as incredible were it not officially known by the minutes of the court-martial in which it some time afterwards resulted asterisked note minutes of a court-martial on admiral harvey on board h m s gladiator at portsmouth may twenty second eighteen o nine note ends on ascertaining the nature of my mission and that the conduct of the attack had been committed to me by the board of admiralty 
admiral harvey came on board the flagship with a list of officers and men who volunteered under his direction to perform the service which had been thrust upon me on lord gambier informing him that the board had fixed upon me for the purpose he said he did not care if he were passed by and lord cochrane or any other junior officer was appointed in preference he would immediately strike his flag and resign his commission lord gambier said he should be sorry to see him resort to such an extremity but that the lords of the admiralty having fixed on lord cochrane to conduct the service he could not deviate from their lordships orders on this explanation being good-naturedly made by lord gambier admiral harvey broke out into invectives of a most extraordinary kind openly avowing that he never saw a man so unfit for command of the fleet as lord gambier who instead of sending boats to sound the channels which he admiral harvey considered the best preparation for an attack on the enemy he had been employing or rather amusing himself with mustering the ship's companies and had not even taken the pains to ascertain whether the enemy had placed any mortars in front of their lines concluding by saying that had lord nelson been there he would not have anchored in the basque roads at all but would have dashed at the enemy at once admiral harvey then came into sir harry neale's cabin and shook hands with me assuring me that he should have been very happy to see me on any other occasion than the present he begged me to consider that nothing personal to myself was intended for he had a high opinion of me but that my having been ordered to execute such a service could only be regarded as an insult to the fleet and that on this account he would strike his flag so soon as the service was executed admiral harvey further assured me that he had volunteered his services which had been refused to these remarks i replied admiral harvey the service on which the admiralty has sent me was none of my seeking i went to whitehall in obedience to a summons from lord mulgrave and at his lordship's request gave the board a plan of attack the execution of which has been thrust upon me contrary to my inclination as well knowing the invidious position in which i should be placed well said admiral harvey this is not the first time i have been lightly treated and that my services have not been attended to in the way they deserved because i am no canting methodist no hypocrite no psalm-singer and do not cheat old women out of their estates by hypocrisy and canting i have volunteered to perform the service you came on and should have been happy to see you on any other occasion but am very sorry to have a junior officer placed over my head you must not blame me for that replied i but permit me to remark that you are using very strong expressions relative to the commander-in-chief i can assure you lord cochrane replied admiral harvey that i have spoken to lord gambier with the same degree of prudence as i have now done to you in the presence of captain sir h neale well admiral replied i considering that i have been an unwilling listener to what you really did say to his lordship i can only remark that you have a strange notion of prudence we then went on the quarter-deck where admiral harvey again commenced a running commentary on lord gambier's conduct in so loud a tone as to attract the attention of every officer within hearing his observations being to the effect that lord gambier had received him coldly after the battle of trafalgar that he had used him ill and that his having forwarded the master of tonnant's letter for a court-martial on him was a proof of his methodistical jesuitical conduct and of his vindictive disposition that lord gambier's conduct since he took the command of the fleet was deserving of reprobation and that his employing officers in mustering the ship's companies instead of in gaining information about the soundings showed himself to be unequal to the command of the fleet then turning to captain bedford he said you know you are of the same opinion admiral harvey then left the ship first asking captain bedford 
whether he had made his offer of service on any duty known to the commander-in-chief to which captain bedford replied in the affirmative my reason for detailing this extraordinary scene the whole of which and much more to the same effect will be found in the minutes of the court-martial previously referred to is to show into what a hornet's nest my plans had involuntarily brought me it may readily be imagined that i bitterly regretted not having persisted in my refusal to have anything to do with carrying them into execution for now they were known all believed and being my senior officers had no doubt a right to believe that they could execute them better than myself so far as regarded the neglect to take soundings of even the approaches to the channel leading to the enemy's fleet admiral harvey was quite right in his statement nothing of the kind had been attempted beyond some soundings on that part of the bowyard shoal farthest from the french fleet had not my previous knowledge of the anchorage as ascertained in the palace a few years before supplied all the information necessary for my conduct of the plans proposed this neglect would in all probability have been fatal to their execution unlike admiral harvey i am not however prepared to blame lord gambier for the neglect as a slight acquaintance with the masters whose duty it was to have made the examination showed me that they were quite capable of misleading the commander-in-chief by substituting their own surmises for realities certain it was that although no soundings whatever of the approaches to the enemy's fleet had been taken those whose duty it was to have made them as far as practicable pretended to know more of the anchorage than i did asterisk note in the subsequent court-martial one of these men constructed a chart of the soundings as from his own personal knowledge and in his verbal evidence said that he had never sounded at all his chart was nevertheless made the basis of the trial to the exclusion of the official charts note ends and had no doubt impressed the commander-in-chief that their reports were founded on actual observations how far admiral harvey was justified in his intemperate allusions to the musters and quasi-religious practices on board the fleet is a point upon which i do not care to enter further than to state that these musters were found to relate to catechial examinations of the men and that i had not been many days in the fleet before the commander-in-chief sent a number of tracts on board the imperieuse with an injunction for their distribution amongst the crew having by this time ascertained that rightly or wrongly the fleet was in a state of great disorganization on account of the orders given to various officers for the distribution of tracts and being naturally desirous of learning the kind of instruction thereby imparted i found some of them of a most silly and injudicious character and therefore declined to distribute them but imprudently selected some and sent them to my friend cobbett together with a description of the state of the fleet in consequence of the tract controversy it was a false step though i did not at the time contemplate the virulent animosity which might be excited at home from cobbett's hard-hitting comments nor the consequent amount of enmity to myself which only ceased with my eventual removal from the navy the fact was that the fleet was divided into two factions as bitter against each other as were the cavaliers and roundheads in the days of charles i the above-mentioned imprudent step incurred the ill-will of both parties the tractarian faction consisting for the most part of officers appointed by tory influence or favour of the admiral and knowing my connection with burdett and cobbett avoided me whilst the opposite faction believing that from the affair of the tracts i should incur the irreconcilable displeasure of lord gambier lost no opportunity of denouncing me as a concocter of novel devices to advance my own interests at the expense of my seniors in the service 
strange as it may appear almost the only persons who treated me with consideration were lord gambier his second in command admiral stopford and his flag captain sir h neale for this urbanity lord gambier had to incur the bitter sarcasm of the fleet that when the admiralty wanted to attack the enemy with fireships he had denounced the operation as a horrible and anti-christian mode of warfare but that now he saw my plan of explosion vessels in addition to fireships was likely to be crowned with success he no longer regarded it in the same light it was evident that amidst these contending factions so fatal in a fleet where all ought to be zeal and unity of action i should have to depend on myself disregarding therefore the disunion prevalent and indeed increased fourfold by the further division of opinion with respect to admiral harvey's disrespectful expressions to the commander-in-chief i determined to reconnoitre for myself the position of the french ships especially as regarded their protection by the batteries on the isle d'aix and for this purpose made as minute a reconnaissance as was practicable perhaps it ought to have been previously mentioned that on the evening of our arrival i had gone close into the island and had embodied the result of my observations in the following letter to lord mulgrave to whom i considered myself more immediately responsible letter begins imperius basque roads third of april my lord having been very close to the isle d'aix i find that the western sea-wall has been pulled down to build a better at present the fort is quite open and may be taken as soon as the french fleet is driven on shore or burned which will be as soon as the fireships arrive the wind continues favourable for the attack if your lordship can prevail on the ministry to send a military force here you will do great and lasting good to our country could ministers see things with their own eyes how differently would they act but they cannot be everywhere present and on their opinion of the judgment of others must depend the success of war possibly the fate of england and all europe no diversion which the whole force of great britain is capable of making in portugal or spain would so much shake the french government as the capture of the islands on this coast a few men would take oleron but to render the capture effective send twenty thousand men who without risk would find occupation for a french navy of a hundred thousand the batteries of oleron are all open except two of no importance Algros would also be of infinite use to our cruisers in the destruction of the french trade the commerce on this coast and indeed on all the french coasts is not inferior to that of england in number of vessels and men employed though not in size of coasting craft the coasting trade is the great nursery of english seamen and yet we strangely affect to despise the french coasting trade must not the corn of the french northern provinces give food to the south are the oil and wine of the south of no consequence to those who grow none for themselves i do not state these matters to your lordship but as an answer to the opinions generally current in england and indeed too much entertained in the naval service also ships filled with stones would ruin forever the anchorage of a and some old vessels of the line well loaded would be excellent for the purpose i hope your lordship will excuse the way i have jumbled these thoughts together my intentions are good and if they can be of any use i shall feel happy i have the honour to be my lord your most obedient servant cochrane the right honourable lord mulgrave letter ends in this hurried letter the reader will readily recognise the principles laid down by me in a former chapter for the most advantageous mode of warfare viz by harassing the enemy on his own coast and by a perpetual threat of descent thereon at any moment to prevent his employing his forces elsewhere in place of the advice being even taken in good part i had afterwards reason to know 
that the views briefly expressed in this letter were regarded by the government as an act of impertinence. Yet nothing could be more sound. The French islands captured and occupied by an adequate force, protected by a few ships, would have kept the enemy's coasts in a constant state of alarm, so that it would have been impossible for the enemy to detach armies to the Spanish peninsula. Had this policy been pursued, the peninsula war, as has been stated in a former chapter, and its millions of national debt, would never have been heard of. So much does the useful or useless expenditure of war depend on the decision of a cabinet which can practically know little of the matter. As it was, the French laughed at the clouds of cruisers intent on watching their coasting trade, which was carried on almost without interruption. Our vessels going inshore in the daytime, when the French coasters kept close under their batteries, and going offshore in the night, when they pursued their course unmolested. Provisions and stores were thus moved, as wanted, from one part of the enemy's coast to another, with absolute safety. The great number of prizes which had fallen to the lot of the speedy Pallas and Imperius was almost solely owing to our working inshore at night, when the enemy's coasters were on the move. In the daytime, we are usually out of sight of land, with the men fast asleep in their hammocks. The constant readiness at sea for an enemy who never willingly left port was, in those days, a great evil, though it was the one point inculcated by the Admiralty. It would have been far more to the purpose to have inculcated the necessity of damaging and alarming the limited seaboard of France, by means of small frigates capable of running inshore, and to have left the French fleets, wherever they ventured out, to the supervision of squadrons composed of large ships, and specially appointed for the purpose. From the hundreds of ships then in commission, traversing the seas with no advantage to themselves or the country, such an arrangement would have annihilated the commerce, and with it the naval power of France. In place of this, attention to the condition of ships was the most certain way to reward. As the men could not always be employed in exercising guns and furling sails, a system of cleaning and polishing was enforced, till it became positive cruelty to the crews. If the reader will refer to a previous letter of Lord Collingwood to the Board of Admiralty, he will fully comprehend my meaning. His lordship states that Lord Cochrane's services on the coast of Languedoc in the Imperieuse kept the French coast in constant alarm, causing a total suspension of trade, and harassing a body of troops employed to oppose him. He has probably prevented those troops, which were intended for Figueras, from advancing into Spain by giving them employment in the defence of their own coasts. For Figueras read Coruna, and it will be evident that had the same course been generally pursued on the Atlantic coasts of France, by order or even under the countenance of the Admiralty, Sir John Moore would neither have retreated nor fallen, because from the occupation which the French army would have found on its own coasts, he could not have encountered one on Spanish soil. One of my principal objects in returning to England, as has been said in a former chapter, was to impose upon the government the efficiency of this mode of proceeding on the Atlantic coasts of France, so as to prevent reinforcements from being sent to their army in the peninsula. The success of the Imperieuse, I again repeat, warranted such an application on my part to the Board of Admiralty, in the expectation of being appointed to the command of an expedition to be carried into effect on this principle. To return from this digression to the reconnaissance of the enemy's works on Isle de A. The opinion which I had expressed to Lord Mulgrave, respecting the trifling importance of these works, was strengthened on actual inspection. Indeed, any opposition which they could have offered was too insignificant for notice, as was afterwards proved when a partial attack took place. 
I could not say as much to Lord Gambier after the opinion he had expressed in his letter to the Admiralty, for this would have amounted to a flat contradiction of his judgment, even though, as was afterwards known, such opinion had been formed on the reports of others who gave his lordship their surmises as ascertained facts, an assertion which will be hereafter fully demonstrated. In place, therefore, of officially reporting the results of my reconnaissance, I urged upon his lordship not to wait for the arrival of the fireships from England, but, as the fleet had abundance of materials, rather to fit up as fireships and explosion vessels some transports which happened to be present. With this request, Lord Gambier promptly complied, manifesting his anxious desire that my project should be put in execution without delay. Several vessels were, therefore, chosen for the purpose, the fireships being prepared by the fleet, whilst I worked hard at the explosion vessels, two at least of which I determined to conduct personally. Not because I deemed myself more competent to conduct them than others, but because, being novel engines of warfare, other officers could not have given that attention to their effect which long deliberation on my part had led me to anticipate, if directed according to the method on which their efficacy depended, it being certain even from the novelty of such a mode of attack that the officers and crews of the line-of-battle ships would be impressed with the idea that every fireship was an explosion vessel, and that in place of offering opposition they would in all probability be driven ashore in their attempt to escape from such diabolical engines of warfare, and thus become easy prey. The creation of this terrorism amongst the enemy's ships was indeed a main feature of the plan, the destruction or intimidation of the guard boats being secondary, or rather preparatory. The nature of the explosion vessels will be best understood from the subjoined description of the manner in which one was prepared under my own directions. The floor of the vessel was rendered as firm as possible by means of logs placed in close contact into every crevice of which other substances were firmly wedged so as to afford the greatest amount of resistance to the explosion. On this foundation were placed a large number of spirit and water casks, into which 1,500 barrels of powder were emptied. These casks were set on end, and the whole bound round with hempen cables, so as to resemble a gigantic mortar, thus causing the explosion to take an upward course. In addition to the powder casks were placed several hundred shells, and over these again nearly 3,000 hand grenades the whole by means of wedges and sand being compressed as nearly as possible into a solid mass this was the vessel in which i subsequently led on the attack a more striking comment on the red-hot shot etc of which lord gambier made so much in one of his letters to the admiralty could scarcely be found of course had a red-hot shot from the batteries on a reached us and they were not half a mile distant nothing could have prevented our being hoist with our own petard. Asterisk note. Admiral Allemand had given instructions to the commandant of the Isle of A to use every precaution in case of anticipated attack. Footnote ends. I can, however, safely say that such a catastrophe never entered into my calculations for the simple reason that from previous employment on the spot on several occasions, I well knew there was plenty of room in the channel to keep out of the way of red-hot shot from the A batteries, even if, by means of blue lights or other devices, they had discovered us. The explosion vessels were simply naval mines, the effect of which depended quite as much on their novelty as engines of war as upon their destructiveness. It was calculated that, independently of any mischief they might do, they would cause such an amount of terror as to induce the enemy to run their ships ashore, as the only way to avoid them and save the crews. This expectation was fully answered, but no adequate attack on the part of the British force 
following up the effect of the explosion vessels the stranded ships were permitted to heave off and thus escaped for the most part as will be detailed in the succeeding chapter end of chapter twenty recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia